0: I want to start this sermon with a confession. Uh, while working on this talk this past Wednesday, I was heavily distracted by the U.S. presidential election. Uh, I had the, the live coverage map on in the background. You know, the, the one with the, the states would change color and you're all inching towards the 270 mark. Uh, I kept popping on the live video feed as well. And, and I have to say that the, uh, the election itself then of course Trump winning and and the things that have been unfolding since then have been uh, quite fascinating uh, for me. Uh, While the votes were still coming in, people were just trying to make sense of what was happening. They're trying to figure it out. They were breaking down the campaign styles and strategies of of the two main candidates. Uh, They had the social analysis happening even before the winner was declared. Uh, We all know as well, don't we, that uh, the news and social media has just been on fire ever since then. Uh, Everyone seems to have an opinion. I think every third post on my Facebook page has to do with uh, the new Trump uh, government to come and uh, things like that. And uh, some people, some people even have thought about getting out of the States. And I thought this was a joke at first, but apparently the Canadian immigration website actually crashed. And so let me say my Canadian passport feels a little bit more special right now, which is really good. You know, I'll show you a picture of it later if you're really interested. Anyway, Uh, but then sadly, though, sadly, some people's disappointment, some people's hurt at the outcome has turned into protesting and hate and some pretty negative stuff since since Wednesday as well. These are interesting times, aren't they? Uh, These are turbulent times in some ways as well. And so depending on your leanings, uh, some people see this as a time of change and and opportunity, as many uh, uh, loyal Trump supporters would probably be seeing things. Uh, But others, if you listen to what they're saying, they're saying, well, this is the tragic end of America. However you slice it, uh, people are looking at, at their turbulent times and they're trying to make sense of the world around them. Well, as we've been learning things were pretty turbulent in Isaiah's time as well, weren't they? Uh, their world was changing. Uh, Assyria, the new kid of the block, uh, was rising into power, and as Assyria stepped into power and made its presence known, uh, people didn't quite know what to do. And with questionable world politics, we had whole countries trying to figure out the same questions. Well, wh- how did we get here? What next? What do we do? How do we survive? And so, in a sense... Uh, today's passage in Isaiah, it's almost like it's a social analysis of those times as well. But instead of people floating their theories on what has happened and how we got to this point, uh, we get the real story. Because see, verse 8 begins like this. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. Here Isaiah gives us God's view of things. Okay? God tells us what has led to their situation and what he's going to do about it. And if we skim through this passage, and you probably noticed this uh, when Matt read it just a few minutes ago, there's one phrase, a phrase sorry, one line that's repeated four times. A very important sentence that's get repeated here. And it tells us that this is not a pretty picture. And so the first time we see it is the second half of verse 12. And if you'd like to look at that with me, please, Isaiah says, Yet for all this... His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. That's how God feels towards the northern kingdom of Israel. So we need to ask as we come to this passage, well, what have the people done to make God so angry? Uh, What has led to God's hand being upraised? Well, the first thing that we see here is that the Israelites are full of pride. These are a people who are full of pride. Look with me, please, starting at verse 9. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. Uh, We've been learning over recent weeks, haven't we, that God is going to judge his uh, rebellious people through bringing Assyria. So the fallen walls here are possibly the first ripples of destruction as a superpower is on the move. But instead of the problems in their world giving them a wake-up call, uh, instead of turning to God for help, uh, they keep doing it their own way. Uh, in their self-reliance they they're just stupid really it's almost as if they want to fix things by cracking open a better homes and gardens magazine fallen wall well let's rebuild it bigger better you know let's get boutique imported stones let's get the best artisans on the job they said this is just a temporary upset the people are blind to what's really going on because they're only focused on themselves. Now, it sounds ridiculous when I put it like that, doesn't it? It really does. But don't we hear echoes of this in our own lives as well? How often do we try to tackle things on our own instead of running to God first? I know that I can be very good at self-reliance. But friends, one of the things hardships are supposed to do is turn us back to God, to point us back to him. We need to remember that sin is there at the core of every heartache. You know, sin in the world generally, but also sin sometimes in our own lives as well. And so the answer to any hurt is to be sure that we're looking to God. And then when we realize that we have sinned, we want to be bringing that to him in repentance. Uh, The answer is never to go it alone just by making life better on the world's terms. Or To aim for less pain just by adding in more comfort. That just doesn't work, see? But sadly, that's what God's people are doing here. Without God in the picture, all they can see are themselves. And so they're blind. Where might we be self-reliant? Where in our lives could God be on view a little more for us? Maybe the answer to stresses with our children is not only learning the best parenting techniques, but in the heat of the moment, also learning to ask God for the character of Christ. You know, maybe the answer to to joblessness is to first trust in God's provision to really know that and own that, even when it's less visible, instead of only relying on seek.com or networking among our friends. Uh, maybe the answer to poor health is not only to rack up more hours in the gym, as I do, no I don't, uh, in, in the gym, or to eat better, or, or to uh, visit the doctor a bit more frequently, uh, but maybe also to learn and rejoice in another truth, that though our bodies do fade, and our bodies get weaker, inwardly we can be renewed day by day as we spiritually grow in Jesus Christ. See, do you see there's, there's a way that we can look at all of these things that have God on the picture, that we are running to him? And Christ uh, loves this. God loves it when we run to him. He promises that when we seek him, he will be found. And as the best father, he's never going to turn his children away. But See, sadly, the Israelites here, they have forgotten. They're his children, and yet they have forgotten his great love and mercy. And so with God out of the picture, what's left is just a love of self. The people are proud. They're arrogant. And so God, Isaiah, makes it clear he's very active in his judgment now towards him. In verses 11 and 12, not only do we see him spurring the Assyrians on in their attack, but the Arameans and the Philistines are in on this too, in on the action. If we look at this on a map, what it basically means is that they're getting it from all sides. God is angry. Their situation, it is going from bad to worse. But his anger doesn't stop there. See, a second reason for God's anger is that the people are misleading and being misled. They're misleading and being misled. As our passage continues, we see that the people, well, they haven't returned to God in repentance. None of this has brought them back to him. And so the judgment in verse 14 is that God is just going to cut them all down in a single day, from the top to the bottom, everyone just cut down. In verses 14 and 15, Isaiah describes the people like this. The elders and prominent men are the head, and the prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. What we have here are people who are not following God's ways or his law or his truth. Uh, The words from the lips of the leaders, as the civil leaders and the religious leaders. All the people in power, their words are lies. And so the people just swallow up these words and they keep going on the path of destruction. See, the problem here is that in all their pride and in their rebellion, they're happy to create their own way. Uh, They don't want God because he expects things from them. They want a comfortable life. And so they're just going to listen to anyone who's going to tell them, you know, it's all going to be okay. Just keep going as you are. They don't want the words of the true prophets who have been calling them back to God. And God especially hates it when this attitude is just hidden under this religious veneer. You know, these are God's chosen people. They're supposed to be in a wonderful relationship with him. They're supposed to be a people set apart for him, a uh, people who, living out this unique, great relationship with their great God, is on display for all the nations around them so that God is glorified. And yet we've been seeing, and we saw this right back at chapter 1 when we started looking at Isaiah, that even their worship is empty and full of lies as well. My soul hates it, God said back then. See, they had removed God from their life. They've even removed God from their religion. There's nothing of substance left for them. These people are misleading, and they're being misled. And that means that they are not being led by the truth. They've forgotten the wonderful words of Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Back when I was in Bible college, I have sometimes printed out Bible verses or maybe good quotes, and I would stick them up on my wall. And let me say, that's a good idea for anything to do. You just take, a, take your favorite Bible verses, put them on your fridge. It just keeps God's word visible for us, and we keep taking it on board. Uh, but there's one quote from back then that stuck with me. And as I was preparing for this sermon and thinking about God's people back then, I realized, well, this quote fit them very well. And uh, so I looked it up this past week so I could get it word for word for us. And, And it comes from a book on preaching that I read years ago. And it goes like this. When you fail to walk with God, you walk on the edge of an abyss. When you fail to walk with God, you walk on the edge of an abyss. Friends, if we're not being led by the voice and the truth of God, we're being led by something else. And that is not a safe place to be. The situation for God's people here, it was so bad uh, that nobody would be safe from his judgment. Uh, not even the vulnerable like the fatherless and the widows, the sort of people who would usually get God's special attention. See, God's assessment of them is damning in verse 17. For everyone is ungodly and wicked, every mouth speaks vileness. And yet these people think they can just rebuild. She'll be all right. Oh, this Assyrian thing, oh, that'll just blow over. I mean, we're God's people, aren't we? But you know, God's assessment here, it's the same for everyone who doesn't live for him. In the book of Romans in the New Testament, the first few chapters spell out the default human condition. Okay, this is the situation of every person who is not walking with God in Jesus. And so Romans three ten to 12 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. See, friends, as we learn from the story of the israelites here we need to see that we need to be no longer misled the only way not to be misled is to be led by god because there is no other voice of ultimate truth these people were like sheep they're blindly following these liars these leaders who are just going to consume them but god well he gives us a loving shepherd who is the way and the truth and the life He gives us the word of life and he reveals him in his written word for us as well or if i can say all of this another way we all need to be led by jesus don't we you know in my own life i find that it starts to fall apart a bit if i read god's word less sort of lose that big perspective I lose that gospel shape of my life. I lose that, that big picture of God's promises and hope and the newness that's in Jesus. And yes, this happens to ministers as well. You know, we all have ups and downs with Bible reading and devotional times. I mean, nobody's immune from that. You know? But let me say that the pathway always becomes clearer again when I listen to God and his word. And by that, I don't mean just reading the Bible and building up head knowledge of biblical facts. I don't mean that sort of thing. I mean something deeper. We need to be people who who open the Bible and we listen to the one who will never mislead us. And as we do that, we can pray, well, Lord, please show me Jesus in these pages. Uh, Lead me by your truth. Guide me. uh, Teach me so that I live your way. Uh, By your word that you're giving to my life, uh, lead me by it so that my life is shaped by your truth. Again, thinking of uh, quotes that stand out, I once heard this in a sermon uh, by the late John Chapman. Uh, John Chapman was an evangelist and a preacher um, here in Sydney. Uh, He died, I think, last year or the year before. Uh, I might have shared this quote with you before. Uh, This is one line in his talk. It's one of those times I'm sitting down, hearing his sermon, and and I think he just summed up all of life and growth and godliness in one little phrase, and and I had to write it down in my Bible. And so in his wonderful, simplistic way, if you've ever heard John Chapman preach, he just put it like this and he said, life is about growing like Jesus. Spot on. That's it. See, that's what we're called towards. Uh, Rather than leaving us to shuffle around in the darkness and to be led by lies and mistruth, uh, God promises that when we hear his voice and when we live for him, well, his leading instead, that's a wonderful journey. I love how the Apostle Paul captures a little bit of this in Philippians 1.6, where he says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, to constantly be led by God is to be shaped to be more like his son Jesus. To have his words infuse our life and rebuild us and grow us And he'll keep doing that until he takes us to be home with him. But sadly, the original people of God, well, they had turned away from his voice. They rejected the voice of the God of the universe who loved them and selected them and cared for them. Just turned away from his voice and instead they were led by lies. They rejected God. So he's just going to cut them down entirely. God is angry. He's angry at their pride. He is angry because they're no longer led by his truth. And if we bring the remaining verses of our passage, the remaining ideas together, we see one more reason why God is angry, and that's because of their devouring corruption. Their devouring corruption. From the second half of verse 19, we read, the people... Will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. On the right, they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of his own offspring. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim, and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together, they will turn against Judah. What we have here is a society that is completely falling apart. It's going from bad to worse. Everyone is out for himself and he's just going to take down whoever gets in their way. Isaiah now paints a picture of of that total wickedness finally consuming them. See, if we really break down what's happening here, we can reduce it to two things. These people have broken the two greatest commandments, to fully love God and to love their neighbor. And here with God out of the picture, the neighbors are just being engulfed. Other people are just a disposable commodity. Uh, Chapter 10 goes on to give us some details, the sort of thing that was happening for them. Uh, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people making widows their prey, and robbing the fatherless. These are a corrupt people. They're taking advantage of each other. They're stealing from and withholding justice from the needy. And Isaiah describes this lifestyle as this uh, never-ending hunger, this, this hunger that can't be satisfied. And he even goes on to use this graphic picture language of people consuming themselves or even their own children, however you want to translate it. Chapter 9, verse 20. But that's what we can expect when we push God away. See, the repeated image here, that very important repeated line in this section of God's hand being upraised, it can mean a couple of things. It can mean that his hand is upraised and it will come down in decisive judgment. The full fury of God's wrath, it is going to hit these people. But his hand being upraised can also mean that he has taken his hand off the people. He has given them over to the full course of their sin. Friends, the only reason why our world is not as bad as it could be is because of God's loving hand of grace restraining evil all of the time. But when he gives us over to sin, it stops holding it back. Sin devours entirely. And interestingly, this same language is used in that section of Romans that I spoke about earlier. When people reject God, he gives them over to their sin. He gives them over. And the picture is dark indeed. And so here, these people, they reach a point of internal collapse. Uh, Verse 21 tells us uh, that that two tribes, two sections of of this kingdom, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, they they turn on each other. And what's so sad about those two places being highlighted is because they were two brotherly tribes. They were supposed to be an example to all the others. But here, the people of God, they're warring with each other. They're consuming each other. And in the end, they're destroying themselves. And yet even their consuming nature is still nothing compared with the consuming wrath of God. Verse 19 says, "But the, sorry, By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. And jumping to chapter 10 again, uh, verses 3 and 4 paint the horror of God's wrath by asking a few questions that can be answered like this. There is nothing you can do to stop him. There is no one who can help you. And nothing that you have clung to in this life for security will ever save you. Friends, the picture in Isaiah is bleak. God's people, they've just rejected him over and over and over and over again. And now they're just collapsing under the weight of their own sin and their self-love. So God is judging them. He's going to bring them to an end. He's very angry. So we think about this, uh, I wonder, and I need to ask, what do you think about God's anger? See, some people only see God as angry. Uh, Their view of God, he's this vicious despot in the sky, just wants to judge and bring that hardship and and pain on on everyone to make life hard, you know, a cosmic killjoy, always angry all the time, grumpy God. And, And others, though, have no concept of God as ever having any anger. You know, it's a God of love and peace, isn't he? Sunflowers and jelly beans and puppies and rainbows and vanilla ice cream, you know, that God. So I want to finish by saying that the only way to understand God's anger properly is not to have one of those views. Not God is only angry all the time, and not God who can never be angry, but to understand and unsee God's anger through Jesus. Because Jesus, he didn't only just pay the price for our sins when he died on the cross, but he also satisfied God's wrath in full. He took all of God's anger upon himself, Uh, That's why the sky turned black that first Good Friday. The full fury of God and his judgment was landing on Jesus so that we would never have to face it. He took the full force, the full weight, the full brunt of all of God's wrath for our sins so we wouldn't have to taste that wrath alone ourselves. But God hasn't changed since the Old Testament. Our God's not a fickle God. He's the same forever. He's still furious at sin. So it's insane for anyone to ignore that, to ignore the fact that God is angry at sin. But there is hope and salvation in Christ. Friends, here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's what's wonderful and amazing. Here's what's hopeful and terrific about our gospel. As we've seen here in Isaiah, there's this repeated phrase, God's hand is upraised his restraining hand has been removed the people have been given over to the full fruits of their sin and his hand will come down in terrifying judgment but when we are in a redeemed relationship with God through the Lord Jesus God's hands are never appraised towards us instead they're open wide to embrace us and to take us as his children as we return to him and never let us go do you see what the cross of Christ does when we think of God's anger And see, in that renewed relationship with God's hand is not upheld and instead embracing us. When we're made totally new by Jesus, we have a whole new picture that doesn't look anything like Isaiah's picture here now of the original Israelites. I mean, yes, we're still going to struggle with sin. Let's be real and honest about that. Every single one of us, I struggle with sin, you struggle with sin. But God eternally loves us in Christ. Our sins have been paid for in full. Jesus' blood has paid for all of our sins, and he has taken all of that wrath. So we don't have to fear God's anger. We've been given freedom from that fear. Perfect love drives out fear. And so we're made new in that relationship. And as we think of this picture here in Isaiah, instead of pride, instead of that being our story, in his strength we can grow in humility, can't we? And we can grow in dependence on a father who is there for us at all times. No longer have to be only self-reliant, arrogant people. Instead of living in darkness, we can joyfully live in the word and truth of God as he constantly reveals himself to us. We can be led by the creator of the universe. Instead of devouring our neighbors, we're brought into a redeemed community. We learn how to truly love our brothers in Christ. And where every member of the church, every person who's part of the body of Christ, is valuable and important, and we all spur one another on as we grow in maturity and love in Christ. It's so different from the picture in Isaiah, isn't it? It's a wonderful picture through the cross of Christ. And then instead of this never-ending hunger, that horrible image What is the end of our passage here? Jesus promises something else. I am the bread of life, he says. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Sadly, the Israelites, in their hunger to satisfy themselves, they were on a pathway of destruction. But we can know a pathway of grace and peace because Jesus sat excuse me, satisfies at the deepest level. In him, we're truly free, free to truly love our God and to truly love our neighbor. And so instead of the picture here, instead of that repeated phrase being our story, we have another repeated line that's our story. In Jesus, God's anger is turned away. God's hand is not upraised. Instead, his arms are open to you. Jesus turns away God's anger so that we can return to him. Pray with me, please. Father, while the picture is horrible and bleak when we look at the story of the Israelites and their condition at this time of their life back in the Old Testament, Lord, while that is a horrific picture, we thank you for giving it to us. And we thank you that in that we can see your real anger towards sin. We can see how serious it is. But Lord, we also rejoice and thank you and praise you that through the, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is another way. We can praise you, and we do praise you, that he has taken all of your wrath, that we don't have to fear your anger, that we struggle with sin, but it doesn't have to consume us because we are made new in Christ, and he has paid for our sins, and he's growing us to be like himself. Lord, we thank you that we're free to love you and to love our neighbor and to live a completely different way. And so we ask that you will pour that truth out on our lives, that we will be on a pathway of life instead of a pathway of destruction. And we ask, Lord, as we look at the cross and look at your love and are real about your anger, we have a new depth of understanding and appreciation of it that shapes every moment of our being. Lord, we pray for those among us and those in our lives who i have never thought about you as an angry God and have never really thought about the weight of sin or people, reject, or people who reject this concept of you being angry at all. Pray that we'll be a people balanced in our understanding. Know that you are a God who's angry when we reject you, but your arms are open wide and through Jesus we can return to you. Father, grow us in this truth. Every single person sitting here tonight we ask. And we praise you for what you have done in Christ. We pray all of this in his great name. Amen.